Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Hawaii Community Church. So glad you're here. Would you stand if you were able? We're going to spend some time worshiping through song. And as we do that, we are uh, going to make this our prayer this morning. So make it your prayer with us.
time there and for the rest of you would you greet each other make each other feel welcome
Good morning, good morning. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. You guys are excited. My name is Ian O'Mara, the director of Community Life. Does everybody have their bulletin this morning? All right, well, I'm going to point, if you flip open our bulletin and the inside cover is our connection and prayer card. We're a church that's rooted in prayer. We're a church that believes that we are better together. So this is fundamentally important to us. It's a, it's a privilege and an honor to pray for all the prayer requests we get this throughout the week. We have a team that prays for them, and it's just, it keeps us in touch with what's going on. I read this statistic that there's like 7 billion people in the world, but loneliness is on the rise. Can you imagine that? There's not a shortage of people. There's a shortage of connection. And that's why our prayer and connection card is so important. So we're going to take about 15 seconds. There's a pen in the seat back in front of you. And we're going to fill those out. while we're finishing those. If you're a first-time guest, please come and see me after the service at the connection table. We'd love to welcome and greet you. And we just want to thank the, the longtime attenders and members for being here. It's just it's such a privilege to get together on a Sunday and just worship the Lord. Uh, we have a couple quick announcements. Coming up in November is our stories event. This is our, our first big uh, women's event in the, in the fall. And we want to encourage you, women, uh, if you know women or you are a woman, to sign up. The registration is open. You can go to our website, ljcc.org, and you can fill out that form. It's $25. Get your RSVPs in soon because we don't want things to fill up and people to be left out. And if you have more questions, you can go to the website and ask more questions. Uh, at the end of the month, it's October. It's Halloween, so we have our Harvest Festival. How many people have participated in the Harvest Festival? It is an amazing event. Last year, 1,100 visitors came to this campus. If you want to ask yourself how we're going to impact this community for Jesus, how are we going to get the gospel outside these doors and onto the streets, this is a great way to do it. 1,100 visitors come onto the campus, and they get to fellowship and have candy and have fun. And the whole time, we have people praying for them. It's just a great outreach event. So the only way we can make this happen is by two things. And I'm going to ask you two things right now. One, we need people to volunteer. Thank you, Les. We need people to volunteer and we need people to bring candy. These are huge. We need a lot of volunteers to make it happen. There's 1,100 people. It's all going to count on all of us. We've got to partner together for this event, and it's going to be amazing. Start praying for this event. Start signing up for this event. You can see me after the service at the table, and I will sign you up today. Our last thing we're going to talk about is our save the date for our alternative gift market. It's back and bigger than ever. We skipped it last year and now it's back. This is a great way to bless people in our local and global community. We can call that global if we want. For Jesus. You can buy some gifts and it's going to go. It's nonprofits are going to be there. So save the date. It's on November 18th and it's going to be after the services. If you want more information on what's going on at this church, go to ljcc.org. Well, right now, let's go to a time of prayer. Good morning. Good morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, God Almighty, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we can come together and uh, just feel our hearts warmed as we uh, sing those songs together to you. 
it just reminds us of what a great God you are. And just thank you for this uh, local community, uh, our local church here, where we come together on a Sunday morning, the first day of the week, and you remind us what's important. And uh, I know today that uh, there'll be people walking in the door here who life is just challenging and difficult. And for others, that's uh, a good uh, sweet spot in their, uh, in their time. And so we pray that you will just help us to, to reach out to each other, to uh, just not ask the superficial question, but to ask the deep question of how we're doing and how we can be engaged with each other and just uh, blessing each other as we walk down this road together. Thank you for the opportunity to have uh, Steve here with us today uh, and for his message on joy. Uh, and I pray that we will have uh, hearts that will be open to understand from you, Holy Spirit, what it means to have deep, deep joy in our lives and that we'll be blessed as a result of being here together this morning. And we pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I have the privilege of introducing my good friend, uh, Steve Huss. Uh, if you... Remember the story in Matthew 25. It's talking about a time in the future where God is meeting with us. And he actually says some very positive things. He says, thank you for the time that you fed me when I was hungry. And thank you for the time that you gave me water when I was thirsty and clothing when I was naked. And what's the response of the people in that story? It's like, when, when, when did I do that? Uh, and... Steve works for an organization called World Vision. And World Vision uh, primary focus is on disaster relief, disasters that happen in this country and around the world. And it is a Christ-centered Christian organization, world-class. And so one of the things that uh, I know there's a lot of people here that have sponsored children, sponsored them through uh, Y Malawi and, and Malawi, uh, but one of the things that I find a privilege is when there's a disaster somewhere in the world, uh, I know I can't go there, but I can go online and donate, you know, whatever amount of money, tiny amount, big amount, whatever it is, and, and pray for that and know that I'm engaged uh, in the world with what God is going on through uh, World Vision. And so I count that a privilege. Uh, Steve is, Steve has... Uh, the, the best job in the world, at least the best job in uh, World Vision. Uh, he, he's like the roving ambassador. Uh, and so he's the idea man. And so he goes around the world uh, and uh, you'll find that uh, today he's an inspiring uh, speaker. So he goes around uh, and goes on the front lines where God is involved uh, and sees how we as Christians being, being engaged for change in the world. Uh, and as an example, Steve is going to uh, Lebanon twice uh, in the next 30 days. Uh, and he's not going to the garden spot in Lebanon. He's going where the refugees are uh, and dealing with the deep crises that are going on there. And so we're blessed this morning to have uh, Steve uh, come and uh, speak to us. Thanks, Steve. great to be back with you again. Uh, I was with you in August, and you're probably wondering, how does this work? I mean, what does Steve Murray do uh, that gets me here? Um, there's usually a phone call. This one happened about a month ago. And uh, you got to understand, when, when he says world vision, I mean, we're, we're involved in, you know, uh, like what he just said, Syrian refugees. It's about 2.5 million 
Syrian refugees that we're helping in some way care for. And so most of my talks are usually on viral pandemics, displacement, injustice, abject poverty, and then Steve calls. And he always kind of gives me these one words that he wants me to speak on. And this one was, would you speak on joy? Well, thanks, Steve. Uh, it's like right in my files there. I speak on joy a lot. Um, so welcome to my challenge. This is my challenge. This has been my challenge the past month as I begin to think through what I'm going to say on joy. There's really just three questions with joy that we're going to try and answer this morning. Joy, what is it? Uh, how do I get it? My second question. And maybe the third one and the most profound of all, how do I keep it? How do I keep it? And I'd like to ground my research uh, for this particular service uh, in three stories. And I'll give these three stories throughout, but hopefully these will serve as kind of anchors for maybe three poignant points that have come home to me as I've done some of the research. If you, if you listen to popular culture, Joy, other than being the dishwashing brand, uh, it's often equated with its adopted twin, happiness. Have you noticed that? And by the way, we're really bullish on happiness. I mean, we, we love happiness. It's a condition that we actually believe we're entitled to. It's actually grounded in some of our founding documents. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah, and if you're single, the happiness of pursuit. But I digress. Um, there's a chance, there's a chance, and my guess is, and we'd all agree with this, that when your life fulfills your needs, that's happiness. At least that's what someone on a flight I was on recently told me when I asked them, what's happiness? That's what they said. When your life fulfills your needs. This emotion that, that takes over you when you feel satisfied, when you feel fulfilled, that, that contented feeling when everything is as it should be. And that's really the kind of the operative word, the way it should be. Hmm. Uh, I've done some more study. There's actually been a whole science on happiness. Uh, happiest country in the world? America. Finland. No, not America. Uh, no, that would be somewhere not in top ten. Happiness job. Happiest job. Marketing specialist. Some of you who are marketing specialists are... Maybe questioning that. Happiest age, 65 to 71. Wow. And some of you are feeling really good because you have so much to look forward to. And some of you are going, I missed it. It, uh, it just went right by me. Happiest dog, golden retriever, right? I mean, that's everyone nods with that one. Happiest cat, that's an oxymoron. Um, they're never happy. Uh, happiest person in the world, if you can Google this guy, Matthew Ricard, a 60-year-old something Buddhist priest. That's who the world says is the happiest man in the world, and this is what he bills himself as. Happiest place on earth. Well, we, we all know where that is. But you're probably saying to yourself, you're digressing. We're talking about joy. How does joy differentiate from happiness? And since we're in church, does the Bible have anything to say about that? And it's just fascinating. I dug into the biblical record. These words, happy and joy, they actually are used often interchangeably. Happy and joy appear as synonyms, often reflecting on each other. Let me just give you a for instance. Jeremiah 31, 13. The Bible says, I will turn their mourning into joy and bring happiness out of grief. Literally, 
You could take those words as so often happens when the scripture is written, a phrase is stated, and then it's another phrase just like it comes underneath it. They mean the same thing. Or in speaking of Queen Esther describing the result of her actions to save her people. And this is from Esther 8.16. For the Jews it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. If you went into the record of David in the, in the Psalms, yeah, this happens a lot. Psalms 32.11. Rejoice in the Lord and be happy, you who are godly. Or Psalms 92.4. You, O Lord, have made me happy by your work, and I will sing for joy for what you have done. So, question, is joy and happiness the same thing? Well, yes and no. It's easy as Jesus people to believe that joy is suddenly our condition, but for those who believe they're masters of their own universe, they get some low-grade happiness. But I just need to tell you, if you research the scripture, it's pretty thin in terms of the backing of that particular notion. Acts 14, 17, Paul and Silas attempt to reason with some universalist-leaning locals from Lystra they're, who are absolutely blown away by what they're seeing Paul and Silas doing. This is what Paul says to level set their reasoning. And this is uh, out of this Acts 14 passage. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. In other words, God is communicating to his world. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven. By the way, I'm from Seattle. Can someone just knock off the rain wherever I go? I mean, I came in on Friday night and I decided, really? San Diego, really? Some of you were cheering, rain! I'm going, yeah, great, so glad. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. What's Paul saying? What any one of us could say, really, we see it every day. It's just stating the obvious. Our God is in the business of delivering common grace to everyone. Our God doesn't sit up there like King Lear looking around, who's blessed me the most? Let's have a love auction. And the one that loves me the most, I'll love them back. He doesn't do that. We live in a God-shaped, God-orchestrated universe, and that shouldn't be too difficult to grasp. In his, it's his plan. It's his blueprint. It's his design. And therefore, should it come as no surprise that we are surrounded by his whispers, his shadows, his reminders, his telltale signs, his hints, notions, references, aromas, vapor trails, celestial post-it notes that say, I'm in charge here. I own this place. I do what I want. You're mine. It's my creation. In fact, if you're not aware of that, that's not a sign that this doesn't exist or that he doesn't exist and that he hasn't filled up his creation with himself. In fact, that's probably just a commentary on your own dullness that your horizon line might need to be expanded, that you might need to push away from the desk a few times a little bit more. You may need to look around more. You may need to, to laugh a little bit more. Maybe you need to get involved in a service project. Maybe you need to dance a little longer. 
G.K. Chesterton, in his book Orthodoxy, has this interesting phrase in the chapter Ethics of Elfland. He says, for we have sinned and grown old, but our God is younger than we are. These signposts are God's minute-by-minute minute invitation to relate and see him and experience and enjoy him. These are fingerprints of God, of God's goodness, of his providential care. Story number one. Uh, this summer, I've decided that since I turned 60 in June, I know it doesn't look that way, but since I turned 60 in June, I was going to call this my La Palooza year. This is Haas Palooza. And so I was going to say yes to just about any kind of invitation someone would give me. It could be to go and lavish ourselves in fellowship. It could be walks on the beach. It could be an endurance contest. It could be jumping out of planes. It could be anything. So I just kind of scheduled no schedule. I was just going to say a lot more yeses than noes. One of the things I decided was to just grab people and go hiking. And one of those hikes was on the Pacific Coast Trail. You know of the Pacific Coast Trail. If you love to hike, this is the trail that goes from the border of Mexico all the way to Canada. And you can actually take this trek. It takes a number of months to do. And so I decided to go out of Snoqualmie and just start heading north. I took a friend and it was a decision that, since I knew I would never say turn around, let's go back, I just said, you're the governor. And so we're just gonna keep hiking. We're gonna look for vistas. We're gonna look for beauty. We're gonna look for kind of God's fingerprints wherever we find it. And we just started hiking until it was about two or three in the afternoon and I realized that this person was as enraptured as I was and they were not gonna say enough. And so after about, you know, you're starting to see the sun starting to descend and you know you're gonna be hiking in darkness. So I just said, maybe we should turn around and go back. And as we went back, we started running into people that were going north on the PCT. What did you see? Vistas, man. Yeah, about 10 miles. Wow, that was incredible. We heard the word awesome a lot. Pretty overused word. It was clear that God's delivery of common grace in the glory of creation was shared by everybody. Animist, believer, worship your cat. I mean, it really didn't matter. They all saw it. They saw something. And if I had said, would you describe that as joy? They would have all said, yeah. Awesome. But it doesn't take a nature walk. A warm home. First taste of good wine. Barber's adagio for me. Krispy Kremes hot out of the oven. The fellowship of friends. Surprises from another culture. Belly shaking laughter. Pacific sunsets. Marathon finishes. Autumn's colors. The embrace, embrace of someone that says, you are loved and you matter. A child's giggle. Awesome. God's common grace touches us all. But why? What's the purpose? Most of us know C.S. Lewis. He's the Oxford Don. He's become a favorite author of many of us. And for much of his life, you may not know this, he lost his mother fairly early on. His father was somewhat distant, and he was placed in private school, which he hated. And so for him, he was trying to make sense of his world. So he divided his world into two. One was the concrete world, the world that you and I see, the fact that the seat is cushiony or hard. You're sitting next to people, the warmth of this place, the lights in the room. It's full of metrics and measurements and real live data that's right in front of us. That is also devoid of joy. He said there's another world that we can't explain that doesn't make sense. It's this he called fantasy. 
Well, after the First World War, he decided to write some of these reflections down in a book called Surprised by Joy. And when describing these early reflections, this is what Lewis states. As for joy, I labeled it aesthetic experience. And I talked about it much under that name and said that it was very valuable. But it came very seldom. And when it came, it didn't amount to much. And then as many of us know, he goes on to Oxford. He becomes an Oxford professor. And he surrounds himself with a kind of a group, a little interest group, kind of a small group. Some of these names are familiar to us too. Dorothy Sayer, Charles Williams, and everywhere I go now, everyone knows this name, J.R.R. Tolkien. These were Jesus followers who didn't see the world as two different worlds. They saw them as one world. That this fantasy world that he saw was absolutely embedded in the world that was concrete reality for Lewis. And so he began to take a more expansive view of the world, a more expansive, consequently expansive view of joy. And so he began to muse a little bit about these memories of joy. And he seized upon the fact that, and I quote, I know now that they were merely the mental track left by the passage of joy. Not the wave, but the wave's imprint in the sand. There was no doubt that joy was a desire, but a desire is turned not to itself, and here's the operative word, but to its object. Not only that, but it owes all of its character to its object. Lewis discovered that it was what stood behind the joy, is that's the thing that mattered, this thing that created joy in the first place. What he saw in joy was a bit of a catalyst some delight that if you could look through that, you could actually see what created that in the first place. And for him, this was a creator God who was trying to relate to his creation. Later on, he would understand that this creator God went as far as to become a human being and to walk with us. And his name was Jesus. I mention this because this was really helpful to me as I was trying to frame out my own understanding of this world. This imprint in the sand, this owing its character to its object. For me, later, I would actually understand Paul's words in French Corinthians in which he says, now I see in a mirror dimly, again, imprints all around us. But at some point, I may in fact develop a relationship to the one who created this. And then I see him face to face. But there's another thing in our study. Equally profound, joy isn't just a catalyst that points to its source. When you and I accept the source of joy, then we open our lives as a conduit of that joy to other people. Story number two, my meeting with Trump. Uh, some of you know that prior to my work at World Vision, in fact, some jobs prior to that, I started a nonprofit on religious persecution rights. Um, somewhere along the line, God had really kind of let me know that there were a number of believers that because of their faith were being persecuted and maybe the church needs to be aware of that. And so we began an organization called Prayer for the Persecuted Church in many churches across the country, hundreds of thousands of churches around November time, we actually celebrate a Sunday for the persecuted church. That is what our organization created and fed. One of the great honors of being the leader of that organization was traveling with leaders who were resourcing the underground church or the embattled church. And one of those was traveling to Asia. On one particular trip, we went to Vietnam. We were sitting in Saigon City and I was sitting across from a man named Toding Trung. Uh, Trung had been arrested over 20 times for quote unquote illegal preaching. 
He was going up into the mountain tribes where the government had told him, you are not to go. We want to keep them animist. We want to keep them nativist. We do not want them to hear about this one that saves them, that opens up their heart. They'd actually seen change, and they were quite fearful that this God would maybe make them, the God would be the real Lord instead of the government. And so the idea was keep people like Trung away, because Trung, once you got him started, he couldn't stop. And he just talked about Jesus all the time. So on one particular trip, he's on a bike. He's going to go to the co-tribe, and he's jumped by security. They beat him up, and then they take him to the co-tribe and have the co-tribe spit on him and beat him again. And then they throw him in prison. And he's there for three years. And so now I'm sitting across from him, closer than I was sitting next to Phil just a minute ago. Trung in a shirt that's too large, a white starched shirt that's too large, black pants, no shoes. And I remember this exchange because there was something that was beginning to kind of come over me. I wanted what he had. It was a weird feeling. We were so different, very incongruent. But I wanted what he had, and what I realized, what he had was joy. He had this little, almost nervous tick. Every time he would express something, he would just kind of burst into smile. Except this was genuine. It was pulsating with expression. Think about it. Broken, bloodied at one time, impoverished always, emaciated still. Much of his imprisonment was in a six-by-six six enclosure for weeks on end. Not intellectually gifted. In fact, at one time, so many guards were coming to Christ, so many prisoners were coming to Christ, they finally just put him in a box. And they started feeding him once a day. He was so intellectually not gifted that he actually was reading in his scripture. He had read the scripture that he no longer had. He had memorized certain portions that said that if you really want to be strong, then you fast. Keep in mind, this is a man dying of starvation. So he just started not eating. The guards probably were less intellectually gifted than he was because they freaked out by this idea that this man could be so strong. And so they let him out. We didn't need toting trung strong. What was it about this guy? He reeked of joy. It just came through his pores. And I wanted that in the worst way. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.15, for we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ amongst those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. To the one, we're the aroma that brings death and to the other, an aroma that brings life. Following seminary, I had a chance to uh, travel with an evangelist named Leighton Ford. Some of us know that name. His connection was to his brother-in-law, Billy Graham, but he was also a tremendous expositor of the scripture. And so we traveled all over the world. On one of our trips, we went into Tokyo, and we met with this individual young man who, who had been a head of the Baptist Student Union. We have, Baptist, uh, not Baptist, but Buddhist Student Union. We have Baptist Student Union. This was the Buddhist Student Union. He had become a believer in Jesus. He said, how did that happen? He said, well, there was, this, there was this girl. She was this Christian girl. And I despised her because she was so open about her faith. And she would share whenever. And so finally, I, just, I was so angry that she was making kind of a mess of things on our campus. And then she just turned to me and she said, why don't you watch my life? You just watch my life. And if what I'm living makes sense to you in terms of the joy that I actually feel, 
then maybe you'll need to make a change. He said, the moment she said that, I knew she was right. It just took me a year to break through all the stuff that I had to work through. Knew she was right. My guess is that many of you sitting here today without much prompting can think of someone somewhere along the line, this joy exuded through their pores and somewhere along the line you said, you know, I want that. I desperately want that. The reason you're sitting here today is you incorporated that same joy in your own life. You began to follow the source of that joy. Was it your coach? Was it a pastor? Family member? Friend? Joy, this experience that points beyond itself to the joy maker. Joy, this winsome invitation that God has made to individual people who have incorporated him into their life. This magnetic drawing effect of others. But I must tell you that my research and some of my experience began to hit a snag this past month. Uh, remember I stated in the beginning that um, in the question of whether joy and happiness were interchangeable, the answer that I found was yes, and it's also no. It, it becomes a profound no when it's introduced to things like pain and suffering and loss. I found that happiness and unhappiness do not make good roommates. They don't exist, they don't coexist. And in this way, I began to see that there's a difference in their qualities. Happiness reveals as a condition. Joy is a choice. This is what Jesus' brother James was saying to the first century fellowship when their faith stance began to run headlong into religious, cultural animosity, the same one that actually put Jesus on a cross. This is what James says. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Story number three. 2016. You see a picture here of uh, me standing with my family. That's my family. Uh, I experienced the level of loss that I felt during that year completely ill-equipped to deal with. That's actually the funeral of my mother that we're standing at. I had just preached that. Uh, that came three months after the loss of my marriage and three months before the death of my dad. And by the way, in the midst of that, I also decided that I would leave World Vision. That lasted for two hours. Our president called me and said, you can't do that. You need to stay. You would have thought that I was inured to tragedy because most of my interviews are with disaster victims, persecuted believers, refugees, and the like. Oh. But these personal episodes felt like body blows that I was ill-equipped for, I felt, ill-prepared for. And I just can only say that I felt like I was gutted emotionally. I can register days in which I would show up in the office and I was just half here. And I would have to admit that to myself. I'm not really here. I am a shell right now walking around and it was really dark and it wasn't helped by the fact that most of the places I was going were even darker and I just need to tell you there were three brothers from this church that made a commitment that every other Monday they would call me and spend time for an hour they knew my situation 
and they continued to just commit themselves to call me. Somewhere in their busy lives, they intuited that I'm not the kind of person that raises my hand and gets called out of the game. I just keep playing. And so they said, okay, if that's the way it's played, then we'll just come alongside him while he's playing. And what did I discover? That in the shadows, that's what I began to call this, the shadows, it's really easy to forget what you rehearsed in the light. Really easy. And for most of my life, I've been blessed with glorious, glorious light. These were calls from friends and many others outside their circle that served as God's ongoing drumbeat of love to remind me that joy can only be found as I connect, stay connected, stay focused on the only one who can give joy. The only one who knows my pain, my suffering, the only one that knows your pain, your suffering. And throughout that period, even to this day, it was like God was giving me hand signals. Look at me. Look at me. Do not look outside. It will do you in. Look at me. I need your focus. I need your availability. I need you tied into me. Hebrews 12 became a passage of scripture that I kept running to. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance this race that's been marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you might not grow weary, so that you won't lose heart. You see, the writer of the Hebrews was talking about something that had happened before. There's a whole litany, if you read chapter 11, of those who lived out their faith and got brutalized for it. The word that's used as witnesses is the Greek word martyrion, or martyrs. Martyrs, that's what witness means. You and I are surrounded by these witnesses of the truth that are cheering us on. And these three members from this church became martyrs for me. Scripture states, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. These are words about focusing. Pay attention. I need your eyeballs over here. Over here. Do you remember when your parents used to do that? Over here. Dog. Cat. You know. Over here. I need your eyeballs over here. I need your focus, your attention over here. I need your agenda over here. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Joy set before him. What was Jesus focusing on? What was the joy that was set before him? Oswald Chambers says the joy of Jesus was his absolute self-surrender and self-sacrifice to his father. The joy of doing what the father sent him to do. Here's what I found out. You and I don't choose joy. Two and a half years ago, that would have been impossible for me to choose. Joy is a result of the choice you and I make. I did have a choice who I could look to. And that's the person of Jesus. And he offered me and not joy based on an environment where everything as it should be, because as I said, two and a half years ago, nothing looked like it should be. 
Joy based on a relationship to a living Lord who defeated death, my death, your death. Who took care of sin, my sin, your sin. So I guess the operative question this morning is, have you made that choice? Because that really is the only question. You want joy? Have you made that choice? I'd like to close with an illustration that... Uh, I'm not particularly fond of. It's, it's one I've never entertained. It's, it's actually an illustration that just keeps coming back into my head. I can't get rid of it. It came up during a certain prayer time I had with Jesus, and this got dropped into my head. When you hear the film uh, that it's a portion of, uh, I don't even think I agree with the total message of the film. Um, but it's a scene that just kind of dropped in at a meaningful time, and I can't get rid of it. So I'm going to share with you, and maybe you won't be able to get rid of it either. <laughs> the movie was Dances with Wolves. Does anyone remember that film? 1990. Now some of us are feeling ancient. Academy Award winning best film. There's a scene in that film called the suicide scene. And if your mind goes back that far, perhaps you can remember in the beginning of the film, Kevin Costner, our hero, a Union officer in the Civil War, realizing the futility of war, decide to mount his horse and to ride directly in front of the Confederate troops where everyone's taking pot shots at him. They miss him on the first pass. And then on the return pass, because they're all egging him on, give you another chance to shoot you. Ride again in front of us. We won't miss this time. And what does he do? In my prayer time, this scene suddenly just drops. I had never thought of this film for close to 30 years. Suddenly this film just drops into my thinking. Do you remember the scene? He drops the reins, he leans his head back, he puts his hand out, and in the midst of my prayer time, I remember thinking, shoot me. That's where I'm at, God, right now. I don't believe in suicide, but man, just take me out of my pain. Do something. Shooting sound like preferable. In the midst of kind of concentrating on this crazy scene that's dropped into my head, I got this sense. This is the way I want you. I want you yielded. I want you vulnerable. I want you opened up. I want your hands toward me. I want your eyes toward me. Can you do that? Or are you going to concentrate on these other things and try and fix those? Which you're not able to do. You weren't made for that. You were made for being plugged into me. You were made for being in alignment with me. Can you open your hands? Can you open your heart? Can you turn your head toward me? <clears throat> I want you to let go of control. Because I'm the only one who can control. I want you to get even closer to me. I want... I want you to get your meaning and your joy from me. I want you like that. Do you want that? Do you want that more than life itself? When your hands are like this, everything falls out of them. You knew that. It's hard to hang on to stuff. When your eyes are like this, it's tough to focus. 
there's a kind of dying. It's called dying to self. But Jesus says, when you take that step, I'll give you joy. Father, we want joy. We desperately need it. You want to create conduits of your love, conduits of yourself, but you don't want challengers. You don't need our degrees. You don't need our wealth. You don't need our privileged status platform. You just want us so that you can fill us with yourself. Father, what would it mean for us to ride like that with our hands open and head back? What is keeping us from that place? Point it out to us. We seriously want what you give. Uh, we desperately need it. And Father, having it, we'll be able to actually give witness to a desperately needy world that you not only exist, but you're tied in to life itself. Again, Father, thank you for the opportunity to research this critical topic of ours and to join you in your mission to the world. In your name we pray. Amen. Good job on the assignment. <laughs> One word, man. That was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> now the I'm not sure what the feedback is, but hopefully you can hear me okay. We're going to go into a time of taking tithes and offering. And this is for those who call LJCC their home. If you're a guest, just be our guest this morning. So ushers come forward for a time of tithes and offering, and we'll continue to worship.
my sense is, my sense is, is that that idea of yieldedness, uh, for some of us, I just get this impression, for some of us, this is a really difficult subject. Because what do I have to give up? If my hand's open, what am I going to drop? Everything. And might I just give you something that was given to me that was a gift of grace? Our God is not one that rips stuff away. He does supplant things. And usually it's because a gift of his grace, a gift of his love, becomes so overpowering that you just drop stuff. Because in light of what you get, this other stuff just doesn't have the value it once did. And so what would it mean if I just, God, I, I got so much stuff. But I'm just going to commit to just daily figure this out. Surround myself with people to encourage this. God, I'm here. I'm open to you. I don't have control. Replace those things that I don't need to be hanging on to. Could be a relationship. Could be something at work, something in the home. Could be a sin that just has tied you down, won't let you go. A habit that needs to go. Don't concentrate on that. Concentrate on him. And then just watch what happens. And now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ask, dream, or even imagine. To him be all glory. In this place, La Jolla Community Church, to San Diego, to the nation, to the world. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.